and welcome to the Star Wars Saga Cast. My name is John Wilson, and this is episode 19 of the show, where I'm going to be looking at both the 15th issue of the Marvel Star Wars comic series and issue 9 of Pizzazz, the magazine that Marvel puts out that has a small Star Wars comic strip running in it. That Pizzazz issue has a... uh, has a really pretty boy on the cover named Sean Cassidy. Now, I'm assuming this is not the same Sean Cassidy who goes under the moniker of the Banshee over in the X-Men every other month. I say every other month because that's when it was being published whenever this was being done. And behind him, with his hands on Sean's shoulders, is a green cartoon of the Hulk. Let's face it, Sean. They're taking advantage of our pretty faces to sell this magazine. Marvel Comics nervously presents Pizzazz. This is the summer TV rerun issue. There is a greatest tube-watching guide. Uh, You get to vote on the worst shows. You get the most of Sean Cassidy and, of course, Star Wars prizes and all sorts of other stuff. Now, just a little bit that I didn't know about Pizzazz is that this magazine was actually only being published in select markets for the last eight issues. There's a little column called Stan Lee's Soapbox, Stan Lee being the publisher and editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. Well, maybe not editor-in-chief right now. He is the publisher, though. And he says that the first eight issues of Pizzazz were only sold in the southeastern part of the U.S. And it was such a hit down there that they have expanded it to the entire nation. It is now a national monthly magazine. So that's pretty neat for him. You know, I'm looking through here, and there are a lot of pictures of this Sean Cassidy person. I honestly have no clue who this guy is. I guess if I were alive in the 70s, I would know. But I guess he's, you know, the the, the dreamboat of the day. When we get to the do-it-yourself guide to day and night marathon summer vacation TV watching, various Avengers are all sitting around the TV in a, a, a little comic, not strip because this is one one panel, but it's the full page. And it looks like the Fonz is on the TV saying, hey, Spider-Man says, do what we do after a hard day at the office, watch a little TV. Captain America says to Stan Lee, hey, Stan, what do you think of this show? And Hulk's sitting in the background behind the couches and recliners with his chin on his fist saying, Hulk want Dinah Shore. Poor Hulk. And there's a robot serving drinks in the background. I don't think the Avengers had a robot butler. But hey, you know what? I may not know what I'm talking about. So we're flipping through here trying to find the Star Wars. We come across an ad for a DC superheroes poster book with all the heroes like uh, Wonder Woman and Superman and Batman running towards the camera. Here they come. Looks pretty neat with an introduction by Isaac Asimov. Neat. Keep on flipping. There are some gags about TV. There's another ad for the Star Wars fan club. There's a full page ad for their next issue coming attraction. There's a nice pretty girl with the uh, pretty much same haircut that Sean had. Sean was, was sporting the long, uh, I guess some people might call it girly hair, although I try to avoid gender identification issues like that. But the little caption at the bottom says, Sean who? <laughs> I guess pretty girls are better than pretty boys. Here's a letter column, which I never talked about because this magazine is not really the focus of the show. But there is a letter here from a girl in Jacksonville, Florida, which is kind of neat since that's where I am. Sometimes when I find letters of people that I find interesting, I try to go find them on Facebook. I don't know if that's stalkery or not. I just, you know, see if there's someone out there who wants to chat. And I found, I've met a couple of friends that way. Um, I was not able to find this person, though. 
Anyways, here we get to Star Wars, continuing the adventures of characters from the science fantasy film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. Archie Goodwin continues to be our writer, with Tony DeSaniga as the artist, Marie Severin as the colorist, and Jim Novak as the letterer. This chapter is entitled The Final Fury, and there's an excellent full-page image of a TIE fighter racing away from the planet's surface into the sky. Now, these things are not very aerodynamic. I'm not sure how they managed to get it to land safely or to get it to take off into the sky. It's very much a spaceship not an atmosphere ship, but you know what? It's Star Wars and the Millennium Falcon did the same thing. So, you know, I can't really judge it too harshly. Cataclysm shakes the uncharted world where a space-wrecked Luke Skywalker and his companions have waged a running battle with Imperial forces. A battle that now is apparently ended. Because remember, last issue, the Keeper blew up the cave where all of our heroes were hiding out from the Imperial forces. And it started an earthquake, and so all the troopers and lieutenants and commanders have gathered in the ship to fly off into space as the planet falls to pieces around them. But, you know, good news. The fools have perished. Fleet Command will be gratified to learn that. But I intend to warn all Imperial units to steer clear of this cursed planet in the future. It's completely unstable. (laughs) Oh, unstable? Chewie, throw the professor in the back. Actually, that line has not happened yet. But back on the death trap that they have so gladly abandoned, far, far below the surface, the motherly voice of the massive computer known as the Keeper speaks out. It's over now. You may all come out. And a little door opens in the bottom of the Keeper, and out walks Luke Skywalker, Leia Organa, C-3PO, and R2-D2. Now, I don't know if Tony DeSaniga is inking his own pencils here, and he wasn't doing that before, but they are looking kind of funky. Um, I don't know. It, they, they, trying to do all this like little bitty teeny tiny lines to do shading on the, on the images just doesn't always quite work in comics. I don't know. Definitely funky art in this issue, but that's okay. So what happened was the Keeper, who is, of course, trying to make this planet ready for its original inhabitants to come back. And since the Keeper gets all of its power from a direct tap into the planet's core, she actually controlled and staged that disaster, keeping everyone else safe. She also mentions that her four children that we've met so far, the Fantastic Four kids, those are actually androids. So whenever it says that she created them last issue, I was kind of confused at how she was creating life. But hey, you know what? She she fixed up a whole planet, so I just went along with it. But no, they were android children, which explains how they were able to survive for so many centuries or millennia or however long this is going on. And of course, C-3P and R2 get into it because R2 says, <laughs> R2 says, Sudo freep. And C-3P says, what do you mean you knew all along that no machine would willingly harm another R2? I don't know if that's exactly true, though. I don't think that the idea that no machine would ever harm another is actually something that holds true in the Star Wars universe. So R2-D2 is just pulling something over on C-3PO. Oh, and of course, if I just turn the page, <laughs> C-3PO totally calls him on it. because like, you've got me into danger more times than I care to compute. And he bongs R2-D2 on the top of the canister. Leia actually yells at them, don't start bickering, you two. Our problems aren't over yet. We still have a wrecked spaceship and no way to continue our mission. Oh, that's right. These two actually had a mission they're supposed to be trying to accomplish. But no, they can't do that right now. 
Or can they? Because the Keeper tells this fantastic four children to lead the uh, heroes out to the surface. When they get up there, they find their ship has been repaired. It's all better. And they blast off from the surface toward the stars. I'll miss the Keeper and her children, Luke. But things will be more peaceful for them now. Right, Your Highness. And maybe someday, if enough of these missions against the Empire go well, things in this crazy galaxy would be more peaceful for all of us. They didn't have a mission against the Empire. They were just supposed to go and talk to the next rebel base and just give them the news and say, hey, here's what's up. We just blew up the Death Star. Hooray. I think possibly, and that's a problem with serialized fiction. I do another podcast called Golden Age Superman. And yes, yes, I know if you're a fan of that show, I haven't put out an episode in like 17 years. I understand that. But... In early issues of Action Comics, the other comics that were in the book besides Superman, they would lose track of their storyline because you'd only get four or six pages per issue. And after several months, I think the writers would just lose track of what they were doing. They would get caught up in the plot of the moment and lose track of the overall storyline. That might have been what's happened here. I think this feels like the close of a story. The caption at the bottom says, but unfortunately for Luke's hopes, his next destination is the kingdom of ice. And so he may be going directly into another story after that, or there may be a gap of time. I don't know. But yes, hopefully they're able to go and tell the other rebel base what's going on. So that is the end of our pizzazz issue. Now we go over to the proper Marvel Star Wars number 15. At last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy, Han, and then there's another at last, Han Solo's showdown with Crimson Jack, Star Duel. And there is a really great cover. Um, <clears throat> we see a Star Destroyer, but instead of being upright in the camera, it's on its side. Because everything's all topsy-turvy in space, right? And we see Han Solo in a breathing mask out in space. Crimson Jack and several of his pirates are in breathing masks out in space. And they're shooting laser blasts at each other. And it really, really is just great. The backdrop of the Star Destroyer has it going in one-point perspective, just narrowing down to the back of the, uh, the, back of the panel. It's, it's a really neat composition. There's some physics problems, though, because I don't think that human beings are supposed to be able to exist in space. I think that having bared skin is a bad thing because all of your fluids freeze and all that fun stuff. So that might be a problem. We open up the cover and we get to long ago in a galaxy far, far away. There exists a state of cosmic civil war. A brave alliance of underground freedom fighters has challenged the tyranny and oppression of the awesome Galactic Empire. This is their story. Stanley presents Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all. Star Duel is the title of our chapter, continuing the saga begun in the film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. Archie Goodwin continues to be our writer and editor. Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin are the artists here. John Costanza is the letterer. Janice Cohen is the colorist. And Jim Shooter is the consulting editor. 
Now, remember last issue, everything down on the planet Drexel got resolved. The war going on between the two factions, the dragon lords and the, the city dwellers, city ship dwellers, they had their big fight and got everything resolved. However, Han Solo's and Leia's problems up in space are still going on. High above the lone planet of the star sun Drexel hangs the pirate cruiser of Crimson Jack. Until recently, it was trapped in its orbit around the unnamed ocean-covered world below. But events on the planet's surface have changed all that. Because Han Solo and Luke Skywalker took out the Sonic Jammer that had the Star Destroyer in its grip, and now that they're gone, the ship is alive again. And Crimson Jack is out for Han Solo's blood. Crimson Jack puts a call down to Jolly in the launching bay to see how the fighter craft repairs are coming. And she has three ships ready to go with a few more coming soon. So Crimson Jack gives the green light for her to go and put a blaster to Mr. Solo. Jolly nods to the repair bay communicator screen. This is the kind of tasks she's pushed for ever since becoming a space pirate to be harder and tougher than any man around her. Yes. That definitely fits into the uh, sort of bitchy attitude we've had from her so far. Even a man she has come to have decidedly confused feelings about. Because Jolly has no sexual maturity. She's never had feelings for a man before. She doesn't really know what to do with this. But Han Solo's down below, unaware of what's in store for him. Han Solo, Princess Leia, and Luke Skywalker are now standing down on one of the city ships. They're not entirely sure what to do, because as soon as they try to leave the planet, Crimson Jack's going to be up there ready to blast them. The Dragon Lords welcome them to stay there, but of course that wouldn't take our Star Wars story anywhere. So they do have to leave as soon as C-3PO and Chewbacca and R2-D2 have finished going over the Millennium Falcon. Hey, 3PO, what's the good word? It really depends on which language, Master Solo. After all, I am programmed to speak a rather wide variety, and in each of them there's... That's not what I meant, Alloy Head. I meant... <gasps> 3PO, get down! You meant that, sir, but what is so good about... What 3PO doesn't know is that there's a Y-Wing fighter descending through the atmosphere, ready to blast him. So Han Solo dives into the water to head out to the floating Millennium Falcon, and now we come to a very minor continuity nitpicking glitch, because as Leia and Luke look down at him, Luke confesses to Leia that even though they're on this water world, he can't swim. However, he and Leia go into the water anyway, and they make it to the Millennium Falcon. Leia makes it to the water just fine. However, in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, we saw a few episodes back that Leia did not know how to swim. And although Luke didn't boast of his abilities, because he is from a desert world after all, he seemed able to navigate the water well enough to get away from that big jelly creature that was in the water. So, um, it's a minor nitpick. It's just a minor thing. In the comics, their swing abilities have been reversed. Maybe it's because they reversed the polarity of the swimtron flow? I don't know that that joke worked, but we're going to keep on going. So they climb up on board the Millennium Falcon. They go down to the top hatch and blast out of the water, chased by the fiery energy bolts of the pursuing Y-Wing fighter. C-3PO and R2-D2 are arguing because C-3PO evidently does not understand Wookiee. Well, he kind of understands it, but it's not one of his primary languages. So he's telling Chewbacca to more slowly so that he can figure everything out that he's saying. They have the shields up, C-3PO has the guns activated, and they're, and they're ready to go. So Luke and Han get into the gun pods they used in the first film. 
Once the Millennium Falcon breaks out of the atmosphere, two more fighters are on his tail. One of them has Miss Jolly at the uh, pilot stick. And as they're shooting at the Millennium Falcon and she's arguing with the other fighter pilots because she's a commander, but she, you know, tends to be a bit domineering in her manners. She has a little bit of a flashback and we get to see where poor Jolly got her stick up her butt. She was born in an outlaw stronghold on a frontier world, and whenever the Imperials found them, their father bailed. You're not leaving us, shouts her mother. Of course I am. The last thing a fugitive from the Empire needs is excess baggage weighing him down. But I'm your wife. Jolly's your child. We'll help you. We'll fight with you. Forget it, woman. You're not good enough. Without further word, the man was gone, leaving girl and mother alone, until an aerial torpedo struck, which the woman failed to survive, but her child lived, to become a man-hater and a space pirate, always ready to prove that she's good enough. So we do get the background on Jolly. Poor girl had to live through all that and has not grown up coping with all of those traumas very well. So we feel a little bit bad for her. But she's tamping down whatever romantic or sexual feeling she might have for Han Solo because shooting him out of the sky is what she needs to do now to show that she's good enough. And what Han Solo realizes is that all of his efforts to escape the three fighters and their blasts have not actually been trying to shoot him down, but to guide him into the tractor beam of Crimson Jack's pirate cruiser. Once he realizes that, he tells Chewie to put on a full reverse... They have a sudden turn that would send most starships shredding into pieces, but most starships don't have the special modifications that Han Solo and Chewbacca have given the Millennium Falcon. It's funny because whenever anyone looks at the Millennium Falcon, they're all like, really? That ship? Bucket of bolts? Things like that, like Leia said in the film. But it evidently is a pretty awesome little ship. Little? Maybe it's the uh, USS Defiant of Star Wars. I don't know. But now that they've done their sharp turn, they are bearing straight down on the fighters, very close quarters. The two fighters break off and Luke and Han gun them down. But the third fighter, the Y-Wing, she tries to get clear without becoming a target. And in the process, her hull scrapes along the Millennium Falcon. And in so doing, it damages some of their controls. So the Millennium Falcon is now no longer controllable. They're going to have to... uh, shut down and make repairs somehow wasted effort mr solo you're only moments away from being vaporized are the words from crimson jack but to get out of this mess han solo has one more ace up his sleeve he is a sneaky son of a gun he tells crimson jack to give a little look in his navigation computer I don't know if you remember a few issues back whenever Han Solo was pretending to work with Crimson Jack and he had Chewie hook up the Millennium Falcon's computers to the uh, Crimson Jack ship. The ostensible idea was to combine their information so they would know as much as they could about the Drexel system where they were headed. However, Chewbacca also did a bit of a reverse and copied all not only copied all of their nav charts into the Millennium Falcon, but deleted the originals as well. Crimson Jack's ship is dead in space because they have no navigation charts. They have no way of going anywhere through hyperspace. That is a pretty, pretty sneaky little thing. Good job, Han Solo. 
So if Crimson Jack shoots out the Millennium Falcon, he loses all chance of ever going home again. Now, Han Solo's plan was to fight his way up here into space and then negotiate with Crimson Jack for the reward money that Jack stole way back in issue seven. However, with this gyro control console messed up and needing to be replaced, he instead is going to bargain for parts. He will give Crimson Jack the information for his Navi computers if Crimson Jack will give him back a gyro control module. Before Han Solo starts to head out in a spacewalk to Crimson Jack's ship, he gives Leia a kiss goodbye, telling Luke to look the other way so it doesn't feel guilty. Which, you know what? I like how that fits with everything, because Luke and Leia have definitely been sweet on each other. There's definitely some romance, there's definitely been some physical um, affection going on with the kissing and such. But Han Solo also has a thing for her. Now, I, I really and truly don't think that the movie version of Leia would let Han kiss her. But hey, we've only had one film so far. Also, it's possible that Han Solo says that, and then off-panel Leia slaps him and sends him on his way. We don't actually see the kiss. I kind of like that idea, too. Yeah. Now look the other way, kid, so I can kiss the princess goodbye without feeling guilty. And then, you know, he just keeps on going. But remember poor Jolly? Her Y-Wing fighter had that scrape with the Millennium Falcon, and now it's floating out in space. She also is having problems with controls, and she's going to need a magnetic pulse beam to pull her back into the ship. And what does Crimson Jack say? Too bad. I've always been rather fond of Jolly. But a pulse beam might interfere with my signal system. Tell that little spitfire she'll have to make it on her own. If she's good enough. And Crimson Jack forgets about the girl in the Y-Wing fighter. Because he has to go out and meet Han Solo in space. I don't think this is going to bode well for him. Because Jolly doesn't like being treated that way. The way that Han Solo and Crimson Jack are surviving out in space, because I noted on the cover and here in the story, they don't have anything on their skin. All they have is a breathing mask covering their face. Crimson Jack's ship has extended some sort of magnetic field around the Millennium Falcon. So all the space between the two ships is not a complete vacuum. Uh, I, I guess it's not atmosphere, but it's some sort of, you know... The magnetic field magically through the magic sci-fi of comics has protected their skin and systems from the hazards of space. However, as soon as they meet together, Crimson Jack presses a button on his equipment that signals his ship to tighten up the magnetic field, leaving vacuum between Han Solo and the Falcon. They don't actually make the handoff. Crimson Jack has an orange pack in his hand. Han Solo has a green something or other in his hand. And since Crimson Jack signals for the magnetic field to be tightened, Han Solo doesn't know what he's going to do. Other people are coming out of the ship also carrying blasters, but then Jolly's Y-Wing comes back into play, and a cold voice echoes through every intercom on his ship. Is this good enough, Cap'n? Is it? Jolly, a little traitor, you're blasting your own mates. She's not only blasting his her mates, she aims her ship for the munitions deck, and her weapons, the weapons of the Star Destroyer, both combine together to cause the ships to collide and explode. Han Solo and Leia do board the safe portions of the Star Destroyer to see if Jolly survived. Jolly did not. And so in the gradually fading atmosphere of the dying cruiser... An unhappy lady named Jolly receives her first and last kiss. 
They arrange for the droids to go out and pick up the gyro control module that Crimson Jack had on in space. Crimson Jack is dead from all the blasting. And Han Solo closes out with, let's get moving, people. It's a long trip home. And while last issue resolved all of the uh, plot elements on the planet, this resolves every, all the other plot elements. We now have a conclusion to the second Star Wars storyline occurring after the movie. The first one, of course, being Han Solo's trip on Aduba 3. Then we have all this with Crimson Dra- Jack and the Drexel system. The two, the two stories kind of overlapped a bit, but, you know, that's just the way things are structured. And I have to say that it was a pretty fun little arc. I think I prefer the space and water planet stuff a lot more than Han Solo playing Seven Samurai or whatever that was in the Duba 3. I mean, that wasn't a bad story, but this is definitely feels more like Star Wars. Next issue, all we know about that is uh, The Hunter. Craven the Hunter? I don't know. But that's coming down next episode. And though I haven't said it much, I do please, there's always a little bit at the end of the show telling you where you can send emails. I do love to get your emails, so please send those. iTunes reviews are also always welcome. Thank you for sending those in, and I will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to send emails, I'll read emails on the air in special email episodes. You can send those to the Star Wars Saga Cast at gmail.com. If you just happen across this episode somewhere randomly, more episodes will be found at the Star Wars Saga Cast.com or on iTunes under the Star Wars Saga Cast. So thank you very much for listening, and until next time, my name is John Wilson. Thank you very much for listening to the Star Wars Saga Cast, and good night.